Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Fred Katz is in the building. Fred and I, we're going to dive deep into a lot of Atlantic Division things, probably a little bit more than other things, but we'll get into some NBA news and notes a little bit later on. We do want to mention the Carl Towns injury. He'll be out for seemingly a little bit over a month. And then we're going to maybe talk a little bit about some potential trade things that haven't happened yet, like such as Jay Crowder. Maybe if we have time, it depends. But the middle bulk portion of this episode is going to be talking about the Knicks. What are the Knicks? What do Knicks do here, would you say? I have a lot of questions on what their overall direction is right now based off of this season and based off of some of the things we've seen. Not all bad, but just generally, I'm not sure of the direction. And then we're going to start with the Boston Celtics, with Al Horford's extension, with Jason Tatum's dominance, with some long-term planning, and just kind of dive in. Fred, what's going on, buddy? It's been been a few months since you've been on the show, unfortunately. It's been a bit. You know, I have to say, Sam, they say that divisions don't matter in the NBA anymore. But you Mm -hmm. know what? Don't tell that to the Game Theory podcast. Because whenever I come on here, we're talking Atlantic division. You're the only reference that I ever hear to any division in the NBA other than the one division title that the Raptors won during the Vince Carter era. (laughs) That the only time I ever hear... To divi- the only reference I ever hear to divisions in the NBA is when I listen to this podcast or I'm on this podcast and I hear today we are talking about the Southeast. That's right. He says gotta, enthusiasm as you do. You gotta you gotta find a way to break things up into little manageable chunks, right? And the NBA does it for us. They does it. They do it for us with divisions. Uh, it's not even like it's somewhat applicable to scheduling, I guess. That's really the I only mean, way it matters. So, it's so incredibly irrelevant, Sam. That yeah. That I watch a truly unhealthy amount of NBA basketball and <laughs> spend so much time just like looking at numbers and and Jericho Sims pick and roll tape and and if you said off the top of your head name the NBA divisions in any order you want I will forget at least two of them <laughs> I would just not be able to recall at least two of them. That's a good trivia time. Let's see if I can do it. Just like from having talked about them on this show for multiple years longer. Well, you're the division master. You're the division master. You know how like like, everyone in NBA media marvels over Jamal Crawford's ability to name his 16 NBA head coaches off the top of his head in like 16 seconds. That will be your thing, but with divisions. So it's Atlantic, Central, Southeast, Northwest, Pacific. South, Southwest, Southeast, Southwest, Southwest, because I know the Portland Trailblazers are in the Southwest. 
That's right. There we go. We got it. We got it. Oh no, still got it, baby. No, the o- no, no, they're not. The Oklahoma. See, I don't even know. Yeah. The Oklahoma City Thunder are in the Northwest. That's what it. That's is. right. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre deal. Okay, we have we want to that, try and get you that out of I here. Know, a- that affected my life when I was covering the Thunder, and I had to travel twice a year to Portland or or wherever else. And I was like, this doesn't make. I get that they used to be in Seattle, but it's been a decade, man. Let's 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 make this flip. Okay, so we want to get Fred out of here in a reasonable amount of time because half the time Fred ends up on this podcast for like an hour and a half because he and I tend to go on like bullshit tangents way too often. I can't imagine why. You mean like that? (laughs) You mean like that? (laughs) So, okay, let's jump into what we want to talk about. The first thing I just want to note off the top, Al Horford gets a two-year $20 million extension from the Boston Celtics. It's a fascinating deal. Al Horford's been awesome this year. There are like some cracks starting to show a little bit here and there, but he's been, he started 18 of their games so far, uh, averaging like 10 points a game, six or seven rebounds, shooting 55% from the field, 48% from three on reasonable volume, doing just everything that you hope to see from Al Horford. He's averaging like three assists per game. It's it's just who he is. He's the consummate professional NBA center, and he's the perfect center for the modern game. I do think that we're starting to see just like a little bit of the cracks defensively here and there from time to time where they struggle to contain just a little bit more when he's involved in the action. And he's not like a great rim protector anymore by any stretch of the imagination. But the value he adds offensively in terms of intelligence, ball movement, shooting, skill, finishing ability, uh, intelligence in terms of shot selection, this is like, this is a great contract for them right now. It's basically a no risk contract for them at two years, 20 million, right? I mean, there's less money guaranteed than the projected mid level exception. Like, yeah. there's, it's, 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 quite little so my reaction when i first saw it was like man they got al horford for that short and by the way basically every time basically every extension that boston has given out under brad stevens seems like extensions are kind of his thing it's kind of a building a a little bit of an identity as an executive now and he's got the marcus smart exception uh, extension he's got the robert williams extension he's he's got the josh richardson extension and and now he's got the horford one and Every extension has worked out. Even the Josh Richardson one where they tacked out an extra year, it's like they just flipped him for Derek White, who, by the way, is another Celtic who's been who was essential in taking him to the finals last year and has been unbelievable this year. Uh extension sign, I'm like, well, that just worked out wonderfully. And with the Horford one I looked at, I'm like, man, they got Horford for that just seems too cheap. It just seems too <laughs> cheap for Al Horford. And then I was talking to somebody in the league who's uninvolved with, with the Celtics and uninvolved with Horford, but just another person in the league. And I said that to him. I was like, this this is just way too cheap for Al Horford. This is insane. And 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 that person kind of said to me, like, not really. Al Horford is is 36 years old. Yeah. Uh and and at some point when you're 36. His entire reputation is that, like you just said, he's the consummate professional. He just had a sneak, uh, a streak snapped, in which he had the most amount of games as professional. He, he played the most amount of games of any player in the NBA without actually making it to the NBA Finals, and that obviously just snapped in the spring. And and he did the Philly thing. It didn't work. 
he did the OKC thing, actually played pretty well in OKC, but, you know, ended up getting sent home because it was a bad basketball situation because they were trying to lose. And he ends up finding his way back to Boston and recovers his career. And it's like when you think about it like that, where it's like he's 36 years old, he has a chance to legitimately win a title as good of a chance as any other team could give him in the league. And he is in the place that has given him now twice an incredible basketball fit, an incredible basketball situation. Where else would he want to finish the last few good years he has remaining? And by the way, I realize that you were very complimentary of Al Horford's game just now. I actually think there's an argument to be made that you were too harsh. Uh, I, I, I am curious to see if you're going to be saying if if Horford's defensive game has fallen off a tick once Robert Williams comes back. Because when yeah. he and Robert Williams play together, changes the way that he can defend, that covers up just about everybody's warts. And certainly if you think a guy is just like an eighth of a step slower, he's not going to look an eighth of a step slower when you've got Robert Williams coming over and helping from the weak side. And Horford yeah. is so unbelievably smart. I mean, he is as smart of a defender as you can come by. He's unbelievably smart. He's such a great positional defender that when he knows he has that weapon on the weak side, he, he defends basically flawlessly. And that was part of the reason why their defense was just, you could score against them in the second half of last year when they went on that run and into the finals. So, I don't even know if he's going to look like a different defender. It could just be that Rob Williams has been out. And when you have Rob Williams back, he's going to look exactly the same as he did last year. I think you're right, to be honest. And here's the other thing with this contract. It doesn't preclude them from doing anything long term, right? Like the big thing, the big decision that's coming for them is whether or not Jalen Brown makes all NBA this season and thus becomes super max extension eligible and like potentially an option to sign an extension or not because Jalen Brown, because the contract he signed off of his rookie deal was so cheap, he can only make, if he doesn't make all NBA, 120% of what his current number is, which is in the like 25, 26 ballpark, if I remember correctly. And he'd be taking a bath on an extension if he signed an extension. So that's the big thing that's coming for them at the end of the day. But Another decision that's coming for them is Grant Williams, right? Like they're going to have to figure out what to do with Grant. Grant's been awesome to start the year. And he decided to bet on himself and not sign an extension for relatively cheap uh, as opposed to what I think he's going to be worth on the open market this summer in a down free agency class in a situation where uh, he really could end up getting real dollars and cents attached to his name. So keeping Al Horford at this number allows them to stay in the Grant Williams sweepstakes allows them no real issues in terms of flexibility long term. It's this is a home run. And like just Al Horford in general, man, like if they win a title and he is like a starting power forward slash center on this title team, I don't think we're going to get to the point where Hall of Fame is a discussion with him, but it, well, may, maybe we don't get to a point where he makes the Hall of Fame. You never know. It is basketball. a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. He Don't forget, like in basketball, they care about college stuff, and he won two NCAA titles. Like Grant Hill is is getting in there, and people justify him with Duke, right? Like it's yeah. like he he was he was on like iconic collegiate teams and won won back to back titles and that's something that would definitely be part of his resume. Also, like let's be real, 
nobody really understands how the voting works for the Hall of Fame, and everybody <laughs> likes everybody likes Al Horford. Like, have you ever yeah. heard a bad yeah. word about Al Horford? So, like, benefit of the doubt. Don't don't count against somebody just getting the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, you know? I th- yeah, I think that's dead on. Like, he he really could get the benefit of the doubt here. Look, we'll see where the Celtics season ends, but it's on a real positive trajectory right now because Jason Tatum looks like, yeah, this is the best offense I maybe have seen in the NBA, like point blank. I I know that the numbers say it's the best offense of all time right now, but just aesthetically it's beautiful. And it's because of like Jason Tatum at the center of it. Uh, He is such a remarkable three level scorer. And in today's NBA, if you have to guard multiple players from all three levels, like, teams do with Jason and Jalen Brown, it really just opens up the defense to such a substantial extent. It's so, so hard to guard them. They can go super fast and small. They can go once Rob Williams gets back, they can certainly go big, even though they haven't really needed to go big all that often this season. It's it's a loaded, loaded team. Marcus Smart is playing super well as the key decision maker a lot of the time. He's averaging almost eight assists a game, which is uh, for people like that watched Marcus coming out of Oklahoma State and watched his early career in Boston. Him averaging 7.6 assists and 2.2 turnovers three to one assist to turnover ratio playing incredibly effective basketball on the offensive end. I, I mean, that is a – it's not remarkable or anything, but it, it's pretty staggering uh, to some extent. He he is he has turned into the fulcrum of being able to just make high-level decisions for this team initiating the offense. Not to say that Jason and Jalen don't often initiate the offense because they do, but Marcus is the guy that's just connecting everybody, keeping it moving, keeping it rolling right along. And, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're I'm spending a lot of time talking about Marcus when at the end of the day – Jason Tatum, I think, would be my pick for MVP in the first quarter of the season. Where do you you do tend to get an MVP vote? So you think about these things a lot. Where do you fall on the uh, on the Jason Tatum and the overall MVP discussion? It's either him or Curry. I think. I, I interesting. A, qu- a quarter of the way through the season, I just like. I mean, if, if we're saying season ends today. Then yeah, I get it. The Celtics are the best record in the NBA, and and the Warrior the Warriors are eleven or eleven and eleven or whatever they are. Uh, quarter of the way through the season, I'm just kind of throwing the record aside because I just I assume the Warriors are not going to end the year forty one and forty one. They may not end the year top three in the West, but I don't think they're ending the year five hundred. I think they will end up with a record good enough to where you won't have to think about it uh, when you're considering. Curry, whether Curry is a legitimate MVP candidate or not. Yeah. It just stands out to me so much. Like the reason the Warriors are 11 and 11 has nothing to do with Curry. He, their starting lineup is eviscerating teams. Uh, they're like yeah. literally, their offense is like literally 26 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. Like I, I, I can't even begin to explain how insane that is to people who don't have a, have a, have some sort of perspective for that already. It, it, it's 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 like if 
he they're it's like they're playing five on one when he's on the floor and one on five when he's not like it's just <laughs> insane it's like if you if you took his other if you took all five warriors when he's not on the floor and doused them in kerosene and then just lit them all on fire like you might have the same on offs like it's it's insanity uh and and Look, you can't penalize Jason Tatum for the fact that everybody in the Celtics bench has been outrageous. And I think every one of their bench players, it feels like every one of their bench players is shooting better than 45 from three. And it's like, I, know, right? I, I do think that um, to some degree, their, their offense is going to come down to some degree because like Sam Hauser is making half of his threes. Horford is making half of his threes. Uh, Derek yeah. White is 45 from three. Uh, Grant Williams is making half of his threes. And I sound like I'm using a figure of speech when I say half of his threes, but I actually mean they are literally making half yeah. of their threes. And I just struggle to see how like four guys on the same team are 50% on a legitimate volume of three, 48 to 50 on a legitimate yeah. volume of threes. They play beautiful offense, and if Tatum, he is scoring at will and efficiently, and he is he has the, the defensive um, advantage over Curry, if that's what we're going to talk about here, because he he is really important guarding on the wing for them, and he is good in passing lanes, and that's a defense also that doesn't really get turnovers at all. So having having length and having that guy who can guard well off the ball is like exceedingly important. He I think he's become an excellent team defender and, and that's certainly a major advantage over Curry and man, just like it's, it's insane his ability to be able to go get a bucket whenever he wants and now have the ability, which he's had for a long time, but now have the ability to be able to balance that within what's been the most beautiful offense in the NBA this season. Just an offense that is constantly making the extra pass and constantly finding the corner three-point shooter and constantly saying, okay, this pick and roll didn't work. Let's pull it out and do something again and then making it work. And it's like the the quickest that offense makes quicker decisions than any other offense in the league. And that really is the reason why it's been the best offense so far. And obviously Tatum is the chief reason for that. Yeah. It's also just like the versatility of Tatum's offensive game as a scorer. Now uh, he can pull it out and hit you with a pull up setback three to either the right or the left, which is just a ridiculous skill that a lot of guys don't have. Uh, he can, drive and stop and pop. He has developed a floater game now, which is actually really important for his in-between game. So he's not totally reliant on taking a guy down onto the block and finishing whenever he wants to try and get a mid-range bucket. Oh, by the way, he's stronger now, so he can definitely do that as well. And just in general, I mean, I'm pulling up the numbers now as we talk in terms of his finishing. But yeah, I mean, I was going to say like his finishing looks drastically better and it is. He's shooting 68% at the rim this year so i just he's almost an impossible problem to solve as a scorer right now and on top of that he plays unselfishly he takes a couple of bad shots here and there like any utter superstar does across the league but everything that jason tatum brings to the table as a scorer um as an overall player again you mentioned great off-ball defense i think he's improved as a passer there's just a lot here 
to really, really appreciate with Jason Tatum. I, I would have Giannis at two, I think, for what it's worth, and I would have Curry at three. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, I think the Giannis's overall game this year. I think that, like, for whatever reason, and I know it's like kind of a fucking trope to say it across, you know, basketball at this point. I think we underappreciate Giannis averaging 31, 12, and six every night while also being one of the 10 best defenders in the league. Like, he's just so dominant. It's not as aesthetically pleasing as Jason Tatum, but it's just monstrous. Uh, that guy is unbelievable to me. We talked about Curry quite a bit. Yes, he is. I, I'll tell you what. I saw Giannis in person. I think Giannis is my favorite guy in the league to to watch um, yeah. in person. Like I think there's the greatest disparity between seeing him on TV and seeing him in person because somebody that big, that strong, that powerful, and just like that relentless, it just doesn't come through all the way on TV. It was why I always said that when I covered him, you know, five years ago, that guy, he was Russell Westbrook was the guy had that title. It was the same sort of thing. He's just like bigger Russ to me. Um, Giannis's efficiency numbers are down though. And yeah. I mean, we kind of have to, you know, the only way to separate, I would have Giannis third for what it's worth off the top of my head, but the only way to separate these guys is to nitpick and, and Giannis's efficiency numbers are, are down though. You could argue he's defensive player of the year right now because he's been totally and he's been totally and completely outrageous on the defensive end. I think he's as good of a defender as as he's ever been. The other thing that I want to add with Tatum, and you touched on it a little bit, I think a really underrated skill in the league these days because we're so used to seeing threes, we've kind of just all been normalized to seeing threes and been like, okay, well, everybody shoots threes. Look at the Celtics and it's like literally everybody shoots threes. You know, Grant Williams is a big and he's shooting threes and Orford is a big and he's shooting threes and they're making half of their threes. I just, I feel like I need to say throughout this conversation that like everyone on the Celtics is making half of their threes. It's insanity. So so I looked up the exact numbers. They have five guys shooting 44 plus percent from three at like genuine volume, which is, the most insane thing I think I've ever seen in my life. It's insane, but it's like Horford is 48 or 49. And so is yep. Hauser. Yeah. And, and I think Derek white is 45 or 46 and it's like yep. and Grant Williams is 44. Like Grant Williams is the fifth best shooter on the Boston Celtics right now at 44% from three. That is insane. insane. So insane. But anyway, getting back to the Tatum point. So, so, so this is good because this kind of shows, all right, they, we we have normalized three point shooting. Grant Williams is the is the seventeenth best shooter on the Boston Celtics, and he is shooting eighty seven percent from three point range, right? And and they have they have a two way guy who actually some broke math, and he's shooting one hundred three percent three. It's like really weird, it's a complicated thing. You have to carry the two. It's really weird, but he's shooting one hundred three percent from three. But anyway underrated skill because we're so used to seeing threes and we're so used to seeing guys just chuck them up too. There are still so few big wings who are like awesome pull-up three-point shooters. Yeah, It's like Tatum and Kevin Durant. All the awesome pull-up shooters and we see guys, we see the value in the pull-up three. We see it with Curry and we see it with Lillard and we see it with Darius Garland and we see it with Zach Levine. To, to me, uh, but to we, me, like the best, the best example of this is Luca, because we see the 
how value it of how valuable it is with Luca, even though Luca shoots thirty three percent on them, right? Like Luca is the big wing that you're talking about, essentially, right? Like he's six foot eight. I know he plays point sure. guard, but like he's this size, right? Even him shooting thirty three percent on them is still incredibly valuable. Totally, and you know what? Tatum's a better pull up shooter than Luca. For sure. Like, yeah. there are things Luca does better than Tatum, and Luca's ability to create space on his step back, like, like Luca is is as good at creating space when he's going left and then stepping back as any other player in the league. But, but Tatum's ability to shoot threes specifically off the dribble is as good as any other six A plus player in the league. You know, the only other guy on on his level, I would say, is is Durant, unless I'm just forgetting somebody, right? And it's just, it's um, it's incredibly rare to be an elite, to be a top notch, pull up three point shooter as a big wing, uh, and and guys who are guarding Jason Tatum are often just. <laughs> there's not used to that kind of stuff. And the reason why I note it as like so incredibly valuable is because part of the reason that pull-ups are valuable is because they, they put the defense into a frenzy. And part of the reason that they put the defense into a frenzy is because they're difficult to contest. They come up quickly, they surprise you and they're part of kind of general chaos that isn't quite as organized as like a catch and shoot opportunity. And how the hell are you supposed to contest the uncontestable shot from the dude who's even taller than the previously uncontestable shooters? Like, it's just so difficult to alter. You're just not altering Jason Tatum's shot. And I think the ultimate guy in the league like this is Durant, where it's like, I don't care if you have the best Uh player in the league at closing out, flying right into Kevin Durant's face. It, It just doesn't. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it literally has to be honest. That's the only person, like the yeah, only person that can really contest. Yeah, it just doesn't like, matter. Like, but Durant, he's not altered by it. Kevin Durant is making or missing the shots. He's not his form. His yeah. his concentration. Yeah. He is so unbelievably great that he has just broken the way that you defend basketball. That you defend players in basketball, and that's why Kevin Durant shoots fifty five percent from range. It's just. You can't contest Kevin Durant's shot. Uh, it doesn't do anything because of the height and because of his concentration. And Durant is the best tall shooter ever, probably. Uh, oh yeah, but yeah. but but Jason Tatum is is really unbelievable at that now. And his pull up game, his footwork is extraordinary. So much of this has to do with footwork. The dude has just become so incredibly refined at a size that is extremely rare to see it, even in today's day and age. And I just think we need to appreciate that from a guy like that. Yeah. And look, like, here's the thing. So comparing Jason Tatum and Kevin Durant in terms of like what they've accomplished is kind of silly, right? Because Kevin Durant is who he is and, you know. All respect to Kevin Durant on this podcast. I have probably my favorite player to watch, like in the NBA, point blank. Jeez. I do think that Jason Tatum gets more separation. I think he has more shit in his bag in terms of like handling the ball. It's just that Kevin, like you said, is the best shooter that is six foot ten or taller in NBA history, and that is an impossible fucking thing to guard at the end of the day. 
he doesn't need to get separation. It yeah, doesn't that's, matter. Yeah, that's my point. <laughs> like, my, my, my Kevin Durant take is that KD is the least – he's not the best player in NBA history, but he's the least flawed player in NBA history. Ooh. His worst trait is excellent. He has fewer flaws because he has none than that's any a other good question. What is his worst trait? Is it like passing and playmaking a little like vision? Yeah, like, kind of, but he's a he's a really good passer. So he's a really good passer. Yeah. But, but like all this is that's my margins, point. right? We're like, do this. This like LeBron, like, you could be yeah. like you you can't defend LeBron if LeBron is gonna go off, but you know how you're supposed to defend LeBron. You you don't want him getting to the rim and you don't want him letting all the three points going off. And LeBron kills because he hit seven threes that are just like, right. LeBron hit seven threes, but LeBron is not an 80% free throw shooter. And he is an inconsistent three point shooter, even though he's a good right. three point shooter. Uh, he has, Things that we could reasonably say, okay, that is that is actually a weakness on the LeBron James scale. And with KD, I don't know, maybe it's like off-ball defense during the regular season. Like it's just like you yeah, know, but and like, like when, then, when but he's then playing the Detroit Pistons. Yeah, like look at what he's doing right now, though. Like he has that defense like on his shoulders, like he's Atlas, like carrying them right now. Right. So, well, that's the thing. He he has. When he goes hard, like he had one year in Golden State where he just decided, like, I'm going to go absolutely nuts defensively. And he was like, he like, he blocked like a one and a half shots a game or 1.7 shots a game that year. And he was just insane as a weak side defender. Uh, and, and he was obviously so good in those small lineups that they ran out and everything. And like, he's an, he is capable of being an excellent defender. I'm just like, this is my point. So he, he is the least fault flawed player in NBA history. I think I like that point just to finish MVP. The other guys that I would have in the mix here, I think you have to put Devin Booker in the mix. Uh, Chris Paul. This is the last time we will invoke the name Chris Paul on this podcast, even in spite of uh, recent news events. Uh, Chris Paul is not having his best season uh, in his career. Deandre Ayton has taken a bit of a step back defensively. Mikhail Bridges has been great, but like I would say Mikhail Bridges has been their second best player. And Devin Booker is carrying the Phoenix Suns right now to the best record in the Western Conference, even in spite of that. So I would have Devin Booker in my top five. I would have Kevin Durant in my top five right now for MVP. I know that they're 12 and oh, 11. Yeah. 100%. Like, but he's averaging 37 and five. And is shooting approximately a billion percent from mid-range. I, I I would have those guys ahead of Luca at this point. I know what Luca is doing, but it feels like Dallas is still struggling to calibrate everything around him to optimize him in a pretty real way. And I still can't quite figure out if that offense is actually working like to its highest level, the defense is certainly uh, not working to the level they need it to. That team needs that defense to be, you know, a top 10 defense given the resources that they've put in, but 
It feels like with the addition of Christian Wood, they're still trying to integrate him defensively. Luca, I think, has gotten even a little bit worse defensively just because of the immense load that he's carrying offensively without Jalen Brunson. It's hard. It, I, I would have Luca at six probably, but I, I would have Booker and Durant at four and five. Yeah, I think Dallas is going to turn it around. I mean, not like turn it around, vault to the Western Conference Finals again, but like they're role players. They're a bummer to watch, man. I know, but but Reggie Bullock is going to start making his threes, and Tim Hardaway Jr. is going to start making his threes, and things will look a lot differently when they're in the mid thirties from three than when they're like twenty eight, like they are now. Like like Tim Tim Hardaway Jr. I think has been the yeah. least. I, I, I mean, he's made he's made like eleven threes in his last two games, I think. But but until a couple of games ago, he was the least efficient high volume player. Like or not even high volume, but just with like any reasonable yeah. amount of volume player in the NBA this year. And Bullock is shooting twenty some odd percent from three and gets off to a slow start every single year. And I don't know why, but it happens every year and then he turns it on in the second half. So I, I, I think when their role players start start hitting threes, Kleba hasn't shot well from three either. When their role players start hitting threes, I I, I think they're gonna look a lot better. Offensively, I also think like I just anticipate they're gonna make a trade. Like they're gonna, I, I think they're gonna trade for. A, oh, I think they're gonna have for to. another ball handler. I, I yeah. just, I don't know who it's gonna be, but I think they're gonna trade for somebody. You keep, you keep hearing about that. Everyone well, in the league I is guess. speculating on them trading for a guard. Let's transition to the New York Knicks because they're a team that has a few ball handlers that have been in the news recently in regard to trade rumors. But let's take a quick commercial break before we get there. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, 
With Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back, and we're going to the team that Fred Katz covers full-time for the Athletic, the New York Knicks. Fred, the Knicks are the weirdest team in the NBA to me, to be honest. Like, you look around the league, and I think that they are the only team that either does not just have a superstar and is, like, full-scale competing, or does not have like a guy that you can point to as being like a future superstar, right? Like even like De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis and those guys, like I think that you can with the Kings and the Kings are so fun, right? Um, That you can point to those guys as like, we're building around those guys, like for sure they are the number one and number two option. Like that's it, right? Or you can look at someone like Orlando, who's 5-17 and 17 right now. They have Paulo. Charlotte has LaMelo Ball. Detroit has Cade Cunningham. Um, Houston has Jalen Green. M- maybe San Antonio is probably the other one. San, San Antonio probably stands out. But what, they about, have a, what, about, what about Chicago? Is that disrespectful Chicago, to Zach Levine? Well, I, I think it might and be DeMar, disrespectful to DeMar. But, yeah, but yeah, yeah. A, I mean, DeMar was second-team All-NBA last year. That's true. Yeah. I so, like, I... I I, It'd probably I be San Antonio, but they have a real direction. So, like, the, the Knicks just don't have a – I don't want to say they don't have a direction. I think they are trying to accomplish something, I'm sure. I just can't pinpoint what it is. And <laughs> that that is one hell of a lukewarm statement. <laughs> I'm sure – Put that, you know what? They, there's like the Knicks Twitter joke of hang the banner whenever something reasonably like exciting happens. They that should be the slogan in front of MSG. I'm sure they're trying to accomplish something. I'm sure. So the the way I want to frame this discussion is I want to talk about like what they're doing, and then want to talk about what the goal is, like what their long term trajectory is. So. I I don't know. Do you want to go first or do you want me to like give a take first on like where I am on them? I want to hear I want to hear the same Vicini take. Fred, you're I'll, muted. I'll, I'll follow you. There we go. Okay. There Maybe we go. I want the same Vicini take. Okay. So they're playing a little bit younger, it feels like, over the course of the last like couple of weeks, which is interesting to me. It feels like they just have decided to play the kids a little bit more. Crimes is starting now that he's back quickly is like in this weird position where it feels like he's kind of in the rotation, kind of just at the back end of the rotation. He's really the one young guy where like, it feels strange right now in terms of what they're trying to do with him. Actually, a lot of them, it feels weird. Cause like Obi Toppin is taking over half of his shots from behind the three point line, which is just like an absolutely fucking crazy thing that I can't understand 
at all. You have this incredible, unbelievable leaper and you're like, oh yeah, let's not run him in pick and rolls to the basket constantly. Um, I get that they have Jericho Sims and Mitchell Robinson that they have to keep around the basket constantly. And, you know, Isaiah Hartenstein is going to be your short roll guy, but like playing Obi Toppin and Hartenstein where you have Hartenstein out high and then you have Toppin roll into the basket, maybe in some Spain pick and roll actions. I think that that could actually get pretty interesting, Um, but it doesn't feel like they have that creativity. And yet they're pretty good on offense. Like, they're actually a good offensive team in terms of the way it bears itself out with the numbers. It's just like they're winning on offense by crashing the offensive glass and not turning the ball over. Basically they're winning the possession game. And I don't actually know how sustainable that is to building anything like they're not winning based off of skill. They're winning based off of just like, getting more bites at the apple than other teams. And I don't know how much that's actually like building towards something right now. So let's start there. I mean, they're, they're, they're also scoring um, based on shot selection too. Like they're, they're taking fewer long twos than any other team in the NBA. Right. Yeah. One thing that I, I kind of noticed over the offseason with how they put together their personnel. And then I really saw it at the start of the preseason and ended up writing something on it was how many guys who just love floaters that they have put together on this team. I have this Uh, note too. Yeah. I, I think they have put together a roster in which, and that was not a, that was a conscious decision, by the way. And in reporting out that story that I wrote about floaters, I learned like they had in internal numbers saying that Mitchell Robinson was unbelievable at offensive rebounding floaters. And they also believed that Tibbs, I, I have a quote in that story from Tibbs saying that floaters are the new mid range shot uh, where you step in, you have a little bit of a higher foul rate. It's when you can't get all the way to the rim, but you have a little bit of a higher foul. You have a higher foul rate on it than you do on mid-range shots because you have momentum going to the rim. Uh, and it also, you have a higher offensive rebound rate on it because it forces a big man defender to still with the threat of the floater, force the big man defender to step up, and then you don't have a rebounder on there and somebody can wreak havoc. Uh, I, was, I was able actually to get my hands on the Mitchell Robinson stat that was alluded to me and I was able to recover it. And Mitchell Robinson by himself last season had a higher offensive rebound rate on floaters than seven other NBA teams like total. So like Mitchell Robinson out out by himself out rebounded seven, five man like units, you know, uh, an unbelievable accomplishment <laughs> like that. that it, he was yeah. by far the best offensive rebounder on floaters. And, and, and if you look at the way that he rebounds, you know, he's a positive rebounder, right? Where he just jumps over dudes as opposed to a negative reba- offensive rebounder, like Steven Adams, who just carves people out. Uh, and that's the type of rebound you're going to thrive on, on those sorts of shots. And the reason that I bring this up, even though it's very niche and very specific is because, I think it gets to a point that you were touching on before where you say like, is this sustainable or is this really building something? And 
I think there are different levels of building something. I think there is, I think there is putting together a team that you believe the players on it are able to take you to the next level. But I think there is also putting together a culture that is able to find interesting little kind of marginal ways to make the guys who are on your team for the long term better. And I think the Knicks have in some ways veered totally in the wrong direction on that. For example, (laughs) for example, uh, Julius Randle is best when he's inside the three-point arc, but R.J. Barrett is best when he's inside the three-point arc, but Jalen Brunson is best when he's inside the three-point arc, but Mitchell Robinson might actually spend more time with at least one foot in the paint while he's on the floor than any other team, any other player in the entire NBA. Maybe team. He doesn't. (laughs) Maybe team. Because hey, if he's out rebounding teams, we might as well be out paint standing teams. Uh, just because, not just because he is, uh, you know, he's only going to score there, uh, but also because offensively they weaponize him as an offensive rebounder. That's where they they keep him. That's a lot of his offensive value. Um, and yet those four guys they all have in their starting lineup, and it looks really clunky sometimes. But then there are other ways where I'm like, okay, well, that's a like the rebounding stuff with building around Mitch's offensive rebounding where he is. And I mean, I think there's an argument to be made. He's the best offensive rebounder in the game next to Steven Adams. I think Adams is definitely the best, but I, I, I think, I think Mitch might be number two and, and that's something that you might want to factor in when you've signed him for four more years. So there's like a, a weird back and forth there where I don't think it's necessarily all good, but I don't think it's necessarily all bad either. I think the greater issue is kind of what you touched on at first, which is just like, okay, what's the future and what's the direction yeah. you, you yeah. want to trade for the first superstar in the door. I, I believe there are a lot of flaws to that because you make it, you trade for the first superstar in the door. You give up a superstar package. It's going to be really hard to have enough left in the cupboard to go out and actually build around that superstar and and accomplish what that superstar is going to want you to accomplish, which is to win a title. Um, so I, I think it's a flawed plan. And that to me is the, the greatest um, kind of thing that's, that's hanging over the team right now. Um, otherwise I think they're just kind of like, I think they'll probably end up somewhere in the playing range and they have yeah. some good players and, Jalen Brunson is, I think, been better than anybody could have expected, or at least as good as anyone could have expected. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other question is what the heck is going to go on? Hey, I want your take on R.J. Barrett. You're like the ultimate yeah, developmental first, guy. Like, first, I want your take I, on this R.J. Barrett season. Yeah, I, I want to <clears throat> go back to what you said previously, and then we'll talk about Barrett. Yeah. Because I think you're right in terms of it being a flawed process in terms of the way they're going about it. And the reason for that is that you have all of these players that like to operate in the same spots on the court, right? Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, RJ Barrett, um, Mitchell Robinson, Obi Toppin, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? They all love that either mid they love the 14 foot and in range, right? Like that is where they are most effective. So, the older players 
the leaders on the team, the guys that are a little bit more developed, they are naturally going to take those opportunities away from the younger guys. And I think that you're seeing that in the way that they are developing Emmanuel quickly and Obi Toppin. And look, I've never been like the highest person in the world on quickly. I still think like he's probably a sixth man if we're being completely honest with it, but there's just like not really a lot of space for him to develop. Frankly, like Obi Toppin again, I don't know how you have this player who at Dayton you drafted based off of his time at Dayton and you have him basically like sit in the corner. Like I think that almost a third of his shots so far, maybe like a little bit over a quarter of his shots so far are corner threes where he's just like kind of standing around. Like that's not his game. His game is running up and down the court and running in ball screens and doing things like that. And ultimately the problem with this is, you're diminishing the asset value of the players that you have taken in the first round that you're then hoping to go out and trade for a superstar, right? You're hoping to package Emmanuel quickly, Obi Toppin, maybe Cam Reddish, Quentin Grimes, et cetera. And Grimes, Grimes will shoot. I'm not worried about that. Like he's off to a shitty shooting start, whatever. Right. Uh, missed a lot of the opening part of the season. He'll, he'll be back. Um, I think that he's a little bit different just because he was hard at the start of the year. But I think that they're not – if their goal is to go out and trade for a star, trade for a superstar, they're not actualizing and they're not accelerating the development of the pieces that they're planning to go out and trade for the superstar. Like at this point, if they want to go out and trade for a superstar – they're giving up an entire like set of draft picks. Like they're going to have to give up four draft picks because unless a team really loves RJ Barrett and I do want to talk about RJ next, like no one here is a centerpiece for a superstar package. Period. That just is what it is. Yeah. Totally. So that's hey, that's just like a flaw. A- it's a flaw in the design at the end of the day. Yes it is and I and and you mentioned Obi Toppin He's kind of the personification of it all, I think, where yeah. people people rest a lot of the blame on Tibbs a, in that, you know, you draft a guy number eight and it's year three for him and he's shown that he can do good stuff and he doesn't play. People rest the blame on Tibbs. And I just don't think I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I really don't because Obi came out last. So. Obi's rookie year, he was like, he really struggled. He was really struggling to just acclimate to the NBA games. It's funny to watch him now because I always say his greatest trait is his ability to make decisions quickly on the offensive end. And it's funny to watch like games from his rookie season when he looked like his processing speed was like, he looked like a deer in the headlights at times. And now he's just like, okay, got it. Okay. Dribble handoff go or okay. Nothing's going on. I'm going to cut or okay. Nothing's going on. I'm going to screen. And like, he is the movement guy. He is the guy who creates all of this motion or I shouldn't say all of this motion, but he created the little motion they have often comes or at least starts with Obi Toppin. And, um, 
it's funny to see how like he started, but he he progresses really at the end of his rookie year, and then coming into year two, he really shows like okay, he's not he's not much of a three point shooter. He's not creating much for himself off the dribble, but like when he is out there, he changes the pace of the game. He's active. He's a screen setter. He struggles defensively, no question. Struggles as as a as a team defender. He struggles with like his flexibility defensively, like hip flexibility and all that kind of stuff. But like he plays so hard. He is incredible in transition. He's few off ball boards was actually able to change the pace of a game when he's in it, which is a pretty freaking rare thing. We see guards who change the pace of the game all the time or ball handlers who change the pace of the game all the time, but not like off ball streaking forwards who are just so incredibly dangerous when they leak out that they're horrifying on a fast break. And he changes the pace of the Knicks offense within the half court as well. And we just saw good stuff happen and the on-offs reflected that the Knicks were way better when he was on the floor and and at the end of the year Julius Randle misses time, Obi steps into the starting lineup and is dropping like 20 a night oh, and yeah. the jump shot comes. Yeah, and the jump shot comes too. And the Knicks front office watched all of that happen. Watched Obi play 17 minutes last year in spite of that. And I understood last year why people thought it was a Tibbs thing, but they watched all of that happened, and then they went through the offseason, and they held on to Julius Randle. They signed Mitchell Robinson to a four-year contract. They signed Isaiah Hartenstein to a two-year, $16 million contract. They converted Jericho Sims, and it's like they could have said, okay, we saw this. We drafted the number eight. They might have said, sorry, my headphone's falling out. They, they, they might have said, uh, we don't know what Obi is. Don't know if this is what he did at the end of the year. Who knows? April and end of March numbers on team that aren't in the playoffs are so freaking hard to evaluate. I don't know if this is real. They might have believed that. But that's why you have to carve out some kind of opportunity because the question, the 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 answer doesn't have to be, oh, he's for real. This is it. Give him time. It has to be the answer. Has to be I know the answer. You have right. to know when a guy comes number eight into your organization. You have to know by the time he is extension eligible, just what he is. You can't say, yeah. or at least you have to think that you know. You can't get to extension eligibility and say, "Oh shucks, I don't know. I don't really know what he's worth." I don't know if he's a third big, maybe, I maybe he's a starting big. And if he is a starting big, I don't really know what the right situation is. Uh, and maybe he's not a third big. Maybe he can't be a third big. Maybe he's only a third big on this type of team. I don't know. Can he play back up five? Probably not, but I can't bet my life on it. I don't know. It's like, you gotta be, you gotta know what you have. And, they have well, not it's, given themselves an opportunity to know. A, a good example. This is another back end of the top 10 pick that we're seeing with Utah right now and Lowry Markinen. The Bulls didn't know. The And part of that was that Lowry got hurt. Part of it was that Jim Boylan was going to develop this bench. Part of it was, you know, just a number of different factors that made it hard. But because they didn't know, they allowed him to go in free agency. And he goes to Cleveland plays in that weirdo three big lineup and then moves as a, you know, one of the many pieces they moved in a Donovan Mitchell trade. So 
you got to There's know. another side, Sam, to not knowing too. There's another side to not knowing. You could be so afraid of getting marketed that you could pay a guy, I don't know, you could pay a guy $15 million a year, and then it turns out he is a third big. And now yeah. you're paying $15 million a year to a third big. So yeah. you just have to know when you're in a situation where you are not going to win a title and you're not even going to win a playoff series. Like you're not even on the fringe. Like you are, your best case scenario is play in tournament and maybe you sneak in as the seven or eight seed. That is, that is your best case scenario. You have to walk away from that season. If you're going to try to win, you at least, I'm not like one of those people who's like, tear it down and you have to tank. Like, I, I don't believe that. These are competitive people who work in the NBA, and I understand yeah. that competitive people, like being competitive is not a thing you can just turn off. There are some people who can't just do that, and I, I respect that and I understand it. But you can't come away from a season like that still not knowing everything you possibly can about what's on your roster. And that, to me, is the bigger thing. Like, turning it over to the young guys, I mean, that's not even really – tanking like pulling evan fournier from the rotation wasn't tanking because he's older than quentin grimes quentin grimes is helping them win basketball games and no, you're it was finding actually like out a smart what move. quentin grimes is yeah <laughs> and you're finding out what quentin grimes is it's not about tanking it's about having as much information as you can possibly get so you can make the most informed decision on your own personnel so let's go to rj now um I just kind of think that RJ starts years slowly and is going to pick it up now. Like his last five games, he's averaging, what what are the numbers I pulled? 22, six and three on 46, 39, 83. Um, Look, I don't know if he's that this year, but I think that the way they've played over the last few games where they have gone a little bit younger, uh, they've played tight games with the Blazers, the Grizzlies and the Bucks. I know that they lost three of those five games, but they blew out the Pistons and I thought they played really well in that Oklahoma city game last Monday. Like I'm not, I'm not that worried about RJ at this point. Are you? I'm a little worried. Okay. Tell me why I am. I mean, you're right. Part of it too is like, yeah, part of it too is like, I think they start off slow. He starts off slow and this team clearly just is still, almost in like throw shit at the wall phase. And he is someone that does need like a specific set of players around him to actualize his skills. Like he's never been just like a guy that you plunk down in the middle and profit, right? You need to surround him with guys like Jalen Brunson. I think Brunson's a really good addition, but like having Julius Randle there, having Mitchell Robinson there, tying him to those two very often in his minutes on the court. It's not a situation where you're accenting his skills. You're actually making it a little bit harder on him. So I'm, I, I want to see what he looks like in a situation that looks different than this, I guess. Um, but I understand your concern and I do. I would like to hear why you're a little bit worried. Yeah. I, I'm worried because of the decision-making, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the efficiency to me is symptomatic of the decision-making. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's, there are still too many moments where he is going to the rim and he's really strong and he's really good at getting to the paint, but there are still too many moments where he's going to the rim and he's got two feet in the paint 
and two guys, he's got his man in front of him, and two guys have helped from the wing onto him because teams are just like, whatever, throw everything at RJ. He's probably just going to shoot it. And then he does. And he's got fill the blank teammate wide open on the wing. I find he's okay at finding guys in the corner. If you help from the corner, he might find the corner three-point shooter. But if you help from the wing, he never really finds the guy on the wing. And I know that is something like decision-making on drives and kind of making those sorts of passes that are just like the proper next pass is something that he worked on a lot over the summer. And I don't think I've really seen enough progression from him in that, at least as much as I kind of expected, because I know he's a hard worker. And I know he cares. I know he cares about playing team basketball. And to me, it's not an unselfish thing. It's a it's an unaware thing. And I I just I was expecting him to come out and be better at that kind of stuff. And I think once he is better at that kind of stuff, you're gonna see it in his efficiency because you're not gonna see those shots out of the triple teams. But man, there was a play in Denver like two weeks ago. Or when was Denver? Three weeks ago. And it's the final play of the second quarter. And there's a Barrett dribbles it down the floor and three Knicks stay in the backcourt because there's like five seconds left on the clock and four nuggets run with RJ down the court and RJ maneuvers on the left side of the court inside the three point line, four nuggets around him. Emmanuel quickly decided to run down the court. And Emmanuel quickly is on the opposite corner, jumping up and down, arms flailing, (laughs) could have ordered a pizza and eaten at least three slices by the time RJ found him and the defense recovered. And RJ shot a, a fall away 17 footer to end the quarter out of the triple. And it's those kind of passes where I was, or those kinds of plays where I'm like, it just find those. And and by the way, we haven't talked about their defense, which is really that's the oh, issue. Oh, it's horrible. Like we, it's horrible. They're they're 26 <laughs> in points allowed per possession. Uh they are one of the worst defensive rebounding teams in the league. I, I actually think RJ has been um one of the problems. The reason I bring this up is because I think he's been I, I, I don't think he's been as good guarding the ball this year, but I also think he's been one of the problems as a defensive rebounder. He had a game against Portland. The other, like, I guess two weeks ago. And Josh Hart had six offensive rebounds in that game. I go back and I watch every Josh Hart offensive rebound from that game. And on three or four of them, it's like RJ is on him. And Josh Hart just kind of jogs right by RJ for offensive rebounds. Like, he's just not blocking out. And the reason I mentioned that is not because it was exceptional. It's because I've just seen that sort of stuff from him too much this year. And the reason it's important is because that has always been a big selling point with RJ is that he is going to do the little things like rebound. He is going to play hard defensively. He, over the course of his second and third years, I thought was a pretty good on ball defender, to be honest. This year, I do think he's taking a step back. I think in general, the team is struggling to contain dribble penetration. That goes to Jalen Brunson as well. It goes to, uh, quickly when he's in the game I think struggles with it I think that RJ struggles with it this year for whatever reason and is it maybe like you know RJ's minute totals are finally down into the like 
more semi-manageable 34-minute-per-game mark. But still, like, you would think that, you know, maybe maybe it is, like, just four years of playing a billion minutes per game and, like, leading the league in minutes. Like, maybe he's maybe he's adjusting mentally where it's like, okay, I know what I have to do to get through a full season now. And like, there are minutes where I have to like slow down defensively on some level. Like I can't go full bore for 3000 minutes a season because Nick Tibbs doesn't take me out of the game. Like, I I don't know, man. It's, I agree with you. His defense has been disappointing. It, It honestly has been like, I'm not worried about it long term because I think he'll defend when it matters. Like, I think he's proven now that he'll defend when it matters. But if I was a Knicks fan watching the Knicks night in, night out, I would be very disappointed with RJ's defense for sure. Yeah. And I think, like, look, he's not the problem for them defensively. He's he's one of many. I mean, I I just bring it up because we're talking about him. They have a lot of issues. I I don't even think he's their their most detrimental defender. Julius Randle's been their most detrimental defender this year. But, But, yeah. And, like, here's the thing. They're they're 25th in defense. It could be worse. Like, statistically, it could be worse. Teams are shooting. They've given up the fifth most three-pointers above the break. Overall, they give up the third most wide-open three-pointers per game. Again, I think that comes mostly from not being able to contain ball handlers off the dribble and then teams just spraying kickouts. Um, teams are only shooting like 33.9% on them on above-the-break threes. Like, this could be worse than it is right now defensively. And to me, it's personnel, but like that's where I start to wonder, is this like the early symptom of Tom Thibodeau wearing out his welcome a little bit. Maybe. I mean, I don't think when I watch them, I don't think they don't play hard. You know, Ra- Ra- Randall aside, <laughs> defensively. <gonna> say. <laughs> yeah. But that's one person, you know, one like person. I don't think one. you can watch one yeah. person when the rest like like quickly plays hard defensively. Like yeah, I don't think does. RJ is like not a He's just not small. hard. Yeah. Right. I don't think RJ is like a not hard playing player. Like Jalen Brunson gets gets killed sometimes defensively, but he plays very hard defensively. He's just my height, you know? Like he's he's, he's just not super small. quick. Yeah. Right. Totally. He has physical limitations. Like it doesn't matter how hard I play or how well I personally am coached. If I were guarding an NBA point guard, I would not be good. Uh, but I I might play really hard. Uh you know, Br- Brunson just has physical limitations. Um, RJ, I think, has not been as good, no question. But I wouldn't say that, like, RJ doesn't play hard. I think he just hasn't been as good this year. Like, Reddish has had a reputation for not playing hard in his career. But I think he's totally – I've, I've, I haven't watched Cam Reddish this year and thought there's yeah. an effort problem at all. Uh, he might rotate to the wrong place. He might fall asleep off the ball. He might get confused times. Yeah. I think he's actually yeah. been – Way more disciplined than he was last year in Atlanta and last year in New York defensively. I think he's been much better, but I, I haven't really watched Cam Reddish and thought, oh, I, you know, there's a play hard issue. Uh, Robinson, I haven't really seen a play hard issue. Hartenstein, like 
I just, I, it's really one guy. And I don't think you can, when it's been one guy for a little bit, and that's kind of part of his rep. And it's really just on the defensive end. We're just like Julius. Oh, he plays hard when he has a shot at the ball. (laughs) He just like, just like lingers. Like it's, it's really pick and rolls that are the biggest problem. It's really pick and rolls. Um, If I were going to play him, I would just put him on the ball all the time, no matter what, because it's how you're going to get the best effort. Just like put him on the best ball handler, no matter what, even though it's just not your best defensive lineup, at least you're not going to have him guarding the back end of the back end of the pick and roll. Just have him guard yeah, Trey Young think, and see what happens. I still think that would be a bad idea. Let's of um, course it would be a bad idea. I'm being tongue in cheek, <laughs> but it's just like there are there there are there are it's just there there are so many times now, like other teams are noticing it and they are like I don't even want to say they are picking at the wound when they notice that they are just killing him in pick and rolls. Like they're not they're picking not picking at, at the, the wound, wound they are, when they're not picking at the wound when the wound already has gangrene showing from the outside. Yeah, they are. They are. They are taking like a machete and they're just slicing what was the wound. Like it's, they're just going at it again and again, and that's that's hurt them too. They they they've struggled against like basically every kind of screen. They've they they've gotten killed on on certain guys running off of pin downs throughout the year. They've they've gotten killed on just like general screen communication, like weird moments where guys aren't running the coverages that you that, that at least on the outside I believe they're supposed to be running um guys guys get they botch switches or or botch certain coverages a lot of this is you know Randall is a common denominator on a lot of it but I will give him credit Julius Randall has been so much better offensively this year than he was last year and it's another reason why their offense is a lot better than you would expect Julius Randall to his credit spent all of last year standing around jab stepping and shooting long twos, right? And then over the offseason, very consciously said, I am not doing that anymore and is playing much faster, is making much better decisions, and is just like not shooting long twos anymore. And I didn't expect that to happen. And um, he's, I, 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 Think he's been about as good as you could have hoped offensively as well. And they, him and him and Brunson being as good as you could have hoped offensively is a big reason also why they've outplayed offensive expectations. Yeah. Okay. Let's. We got to finish on the Knicks because I have one more topic I want to hit here with you that I've promised the people. So we're going to go for five more minutes. Um, let's do it. Carl Towns is now out for about a month. Let's say it's being positioned as four to six weeks. Month, month and a half, that'd be. The Minnesota Timberwolves have been, I I would say, the most disappointing team in the league this year. I know that they went through that little run where they won five straight games. You know, they beat the Cavs. Then they got the win in, in Orlando. They got the win against the 76ers where Joel Embiid was playing, but he was really the only guy. Um, among their starters, like the big starters that were playing in that game. Um, they got the win against the Heat. And they got the win against the Pacers. And then, you know, lose to the Hornets, lose to the Warriors, lose to the Wizards. They've lost a game to the Knicks this year. Um, they've lost a, a game to the Spurs. Uh, they've lost two to the Spurs. That's right. Like the overall strength of schedule stuff, that's going on with the Timberwolves is very concerning. And on top of it, now they don't have towns. And if you look at the numbers, they've actually been 
drastically worse when Rudy Gobert is out on the court alone, uh, as opposed to like both Rudy Gobert and Carl Towns or just Carl Towns on the court. So uh, this feels concerning to me. It also feels concerning to me that they don't really have a roster that is like totally optimized to be able to get the most out of Rudy Gobert because Anthony Edwards is not like a drive and kick guy that's going to create open threes. D'Angelo Russell just doesn't have the ability to separate at a super high level in the same way that like say a Donovan Mitchell did driving and kicking and creating open threes that way. Kyle Anderson is just a low volume three point shooter. Jaden McDaniels as good as he is, is not a guy that I think teams really care about him shooting from three at this point. So I, I just don't think that this roster is optimized for a lone Rudy Gobert lineup to be out there. And I, I worry that this thing could go downhill. I, I know they beat the Grizzlies um, on Wednesday. And like, I know that there's still a chance here that they could figure this out, but I think it's going to involve a lot of playing Edwards, super heavy minutes, a lot of playing Gobert, super heavy minutes, and you're losing all this time to try and figure out the Rudy Gobert, Carl Towns situation. It feels like a difficult needle for them to thread now the rest of the way. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what concerns me about them the most. And man, I made this point to someone earlier this week, and I can't remember if I said it on a podcast or in a conversation with someone. So if I said it on a podcast, I haven't to that podcast. Sorry, I have to hear it again. The thing that concerns me with them the reason, like like the main reasons they went out and traded all that stuff for Rudy Gobert is because last year they had two huge problems. That Number one was that they had to come up with a really kind of gimmicky, blitzy pick-and-roll defense because they didn't have good enough rim protection. And Rudy Gobert obviously solves that basically on his own. And number two was they were really bad as a defensive rebounding team. And Rudy Gobert was going to save that. One of the lost the Memphis series was because Memphis was just flying, like Brandon Clark was just destroying them on the offensive boards for Memphis. And Rudy Gobert is good enough to where it's like he's going to solve that all on his own. They're 26th in defensive rebounding. This roster is put together not to be like good at defensive rebounding. If you're going to be good with this type of roster, you have to clean up. And just like we talked about how the Knicks squeezing a little bit extra out of their offense by winning the possession game, the Wolves are doing the polar opposite. They're getting killed on the defensive boards, and they aren't good at getting offensive boards. So that is just like doubling the problem. They don't create a lot of they don't create a lot of turnovers on defense. And they turn it over way more than they should on the other end. So they're doubling the problem on that end. It's like you are just giving away possessions. You are like, it's just, it's, I don't know. I'm a Jets fan. So I'm used to this. I'm used to watching Mark Sanchez. Like this, this is, this is not a way to win in a possessions laden sport. Uh, and it's very concerning to me that the things that Rudy Gobert was supposed to clean up. It's not like, like if they were like 15th in defensive rebounding, I'd be like, I'd still be like, that's a problem. If they were like 12th, I'd be like, that's a problem. 
if you're going to put together this roster, the point is you have to kill at like the size and grit and physicality things. Like that is, that is the point of this roster. Um, the fact that they are one of the five worst defensive rebounding teams in the league, that they're not finishing possessions and that they are so losing the possession game to such an extreme, like that, that makes me really concerned because it's one thing to be 11 and 11. It's another thing to be 11 and 11 against soft schedule. And it's another thing to be 11 and 11 against a soft schedule and losing in the exact way you are not supposed to. And I am, I am concerned. I, I I am whether even if Towns had not gotten hurt, I, I would just be concerned. And none of this is even a commentary on the weird ass vibes that are coming out of that place. Well, and like, here, here's the thing. So they, according to basketball reference have played the third easiest schedule in the league so far. And they're sitting at 11, 11. This is a team that almost more than anything was built to rack up regular season wins by destroying the glass, by being able to bludgeon teams, by being able to um, kind of control the paint in a substantial way defensively. But like, the other thing that really worries me is that a lot of the tape, like I think that overall their defensive deficiencies in the regular season are probably slightly overstated. Like they are still right around league average in defense, even with Carl Towns having to chase guys around. The problem is that like some of the tape that's out there of Carl Towns having to chase around fours and like having to chase around guys on the perimeter it's really bad and it's really, really easy, I think, to scheme as you move up and start playing playoff level matchups where you have to win in a seven game series and teams are genuinely scheming and throwing in different sets, throwing in different little mini looks that they're going to be able to run when you're having to beat a team four times in a week over seven games or four times in two weeks over seven games. So totally. I mean, look, I'm, yeah, I'm worried about like that. people talk about talent's going to be in the stretch force. To me, that's not the issue. It's, and that's not what we've seen. It's he against movement force. And that's really yeah. what it is. I don't really care that much about Carl towns guarding a corner three point shooter. What I care is about Carl, Carl towns trying to get around a pin down. Uh, you know, we just, we just talked about, Obi Toppin, right? Like that's just like a bench four, but the Knicks are running them off of pin downs. Like the Knicks are running them around screens, like towns having to guard that kind of stuff. First of all, that's exhausting for a big man. It's like really yes. exhausting. And, and, and second, I mean, especially one who has to carry the offensive load that he does. Uh, second of all, that's just not his defensive skill set. Not that he's some elite rim protector, but I would rather have him guarding some sort of standstill corner three-point shooter than than guarding movement guys. And if you can get him onto onto cutters and curlers and all of that, then you can you can do some stuff. Well and, and here's the other basic thing, right? So Carl Towns right now is taking 14.4 field goal attempts per game. That is down basically to his rookie year level in terms of shooting volume. Regardless of what you think Anthony Edwards can be in the future, Carl Towns is your best offensive player and you are reducing his output offensively 
with what they've tried to do. And part of what they've tried to do is incorporate his passing ability more. And I think that he has probably been unselfish to a fault trying to integrate all of these pieces long-term. But man, it just feels like it's so clogged up on offense every single time that I watch them. Like Carl Towns likes to go down on the block and like likes to try and like bludgeon a guy who's like a mismatch four right? Or if he gets a guard on him. It's hard to do that when Rudy Gobert is right next to him because you get that help that's automatically coming over. It it just feels like a roster that actually doesn't accentuate their best offensive players skill set more than anything. Like, you can say that you need a great defender next to Carl Towns, but like, you maybe could have tried to trade two first round picks for Miles Turner this summer gotten 80% of what Rudy Gobert brings defensively got the floor spacing maybe, and then tried to make it work that way. Right. Um, Instead of giving up a shit ton of assets for Rudy Gobert and taking the ball out of your best player's hands more often, basically. And this isn't necessarily, I don't think that it's Rudy's fault. I just think that it's, a byproduct of what's happening with this team so far. I think that is very well said. Yeah. Okay. Fred, we got to get you out of here. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got going on. Tell the people what you've got coming at the athletic. Just, I don't, I don't know what all you got to say. Go for it. Uh, you can follow my next coverage at the athletic. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Fred Katz and uh, that's it. Follow Sam. That's it. He's great. <laughs> Go to The Athletic. Keep us employed over there. We have a promotional link, uh, theathletic.com slash game theory. So you can go there and subscribe to The Athletic. That would be very valuable for both Fred and I, especially me. Uh, please go read Fred's Knicks coverage. I will have some other stuff coming up at the website at some point this month. Um, keep it locked here, though. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.